Hello and welcome to the course. I'm your host today, Julie, and I'm speaking with Professor Allison Edinger from the Departments of Linguistics and Computer Science at the University of Chicago. Professor Edinger is a computational linguist whose research focuses on language processing in both humans and in artificial intelligence systems. She is committed to helping build stronger connections between linguistics, natural language processing, and the cognitive neuroscience of language. And she serves an organizational role in several interdisciplinary communities, such as the Society for Computation in Linguistics. She is here today to talk to us about her career path and how she became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome to the course, Professor Edinger. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Can you start us off by giving a quick general overview of your career path from college years to becoming a professor at the University of Chicago? Can you kind of walk me through the steps between undergraduate and where you are today? So I, when I was an undergraduate, prior to entering college, I had taken an interest in languages. And I like to stress that folks who become linguists don't all become linguists because they have an interest in learning languages, but that was the case for me. And so that was what uh, got me interested in linguistics as an undergrad. And subsequently, I had the advice that since linguistics interfaces with a lot of other fields and can very productively be combined with other majors, I received the advice to, to add another major. And since I was interested in the human brain and, and human psychology, I added psychology as a, a second major. And so those were my two majors sort of out of interest in humans and language that I that I had as, as an undergraduate. And as I was finishing up undergrad, I was certainly interested in the possibility of going into a PhD program, but I wasn't totally sure. So I took some time between undergrad and the PhD to first, I tried something completely different. I went abroad and I, I did a brief graduate program in a totally different area. But while I was there, I sort of came to the realization, which I think was very valuable, that I really did miss the science of humans while I was off doing other things. And so this was very informative. And I then looked for for positions that could move me in that direction. And I was fortunate enough to get a, a research position at NYU in the MEG lab doing neuroscience of language cognitive neuroscience of language. And so I spent two years doing research there. And this helped to clarify for me that I really did love doing research. I was very excited about pursuing and generating knowledge. And I was still very excited about language and, and the human mind. So I ended up pursuing PhD programs, went to the University of Maryland for my PhD in a linguistics program and was focused specifically on areas focused on understanding meaning and formalizing meaning in language and psycholinguistics, that is studying sort of real-time processing, how the brain processes language in humans. So those were my primary areas, but I had also at that point started taking an interest in the use of computational methods to pursue and explore problems in language. And so that's the final piece of the puzzle for you know my academic journey is that addition of, of computational methods, which I took a substantial interest in early in my PhD and then pursued pretty aggressively through the rest of my PhD and, and, and ultimately became very solidly a computational linguist, though retaining that interest in psycholinguistics and, and semantics, interest in meaning from the linguistics, the pure sort of core linguistic side. So um, yeah, so that was, that was in my PhD, I ended up as a computational linguist with interests in meaning and psycholinguistics. And this defined my research trajectory and my research agenda as a PhD student. And then uh, as I'm finishing the PhD, you know, I'm still interested in you know, pursuing this research career. And there are you know, options to pursue both in academia and in industry. And I ended up being fortunate enough to uh, get this position at the University of Chicago and being able to pursue that research here. So that, I think, brings me to the to where we are now. 
I want to go back to this idea that you were someone who was interested in language from a young age. Can you tell me a little bit about that interest? Do you know where it came from? Did you have early exposure to multiple different languages? Was it something your parents talked about? Where did that interest come from? And can you tell me a little bit about what that looked like for you? Yes, of course. So for me, it is, it's quite an interesting story to me because at first when I was young, I really did, even though I was exposed to opportunities to study languages, I really didn't take an interest. So I, I come from a, a monolingual home background. And so I, I really didn't have exposure at home to languages other than English. And I lived in, a, in an area that also was quite rural and homogenous. And so I, I really was not exposed to other languages at all as a child. When my parents provided me with the option to learn, it was specifically French. I didn't really, it, it didn't take. I wasn't very interested at first. I had a couple of opportunities to do this. But the point at which I suddenly, very suddenly became quite passionate about languages was when as a middle schooler, I had the very special opportunity to go abroad for, for the first time. And this was a, a small school trip exchange program to to Japan. And I learned a very small amount of Japanese in preparation to go there. And what I discovered as a child while there was that when you learn languages, this can open up communication opportunities and opportunities to connect with and speak with people uh, who otherwise you may not be able to connect with or communicate with. And this to me was just mind blowing and just so exciting. And, and this was really the thing that triggered my interest in learning languages. It was that human component to languages. And so after that, I just suddenly started you know, studying whatever languages I, I could get my hands on. And, and that, that that's really the story. I'm curious if there is a similar story for your interest in computer science. When did that start to occur? Is there an early interest you had in that? Was it later in your career? When, when did you become interested in computer science? Yeah, so it was later. Since I was not a computer science major as an undergraduate, it was while I was at NYU that I began taking, getting some exposure to and taking an interest in use of computational methods. And it was more of a practical consideration since I was able to make use of computational methods to help to automate my uh, analyses that I was doing on recorded human brain data. But the, <laughs> the thing that also connects back to the, the the previous story is that what I found, I think one of the reasons that I took such an interest in programming was that for me, the learning of programming languages ended up feeling quite parallel to learning natural human languages, both of which I found very enjoyable. So so both from the practical side and also just from the, the side of, of what I found enjoyable to do, that ended up being something that I took a substantial interest in as well. Who throughout your career have been some of the most influential mentors that you've had? It could be someone even, you know, back in college days or someone who was just personally really supported you or in your career now who have been the people who have influenced your career most. Yeah, uh, certainly my my formal mentors. I've, I've had many extremely valuable and, and critical mentors over the years. In my undergraduate years, there were some linguistics professors and in particular my, my undergraduate thesis advisor who really pushed me forward with pursuing linguistics and supported me in writing my thesis and supported me in pursuing a PhD, applying to PhD programs. And so she really was quite instrumental in the, the path that I took. And of course, my my advisors in my PhD also absolutely <laughs> instrumental. My advisors and other mentors as well, other faculty who helped guide me to become interested in and gain education in computational linguistics, all just absolutely critical in, in this path. Yeah, 
I'm curious if you have experienced any resistance throughout your career. It could be the resistance of self-doubt or not quite feeling certain about what you were doing or a more external pressure. But can you share a couple moments of resistance or challenge that you faced throughout your career and how you pushed through them? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the easy answer is that there are constant challenges. You know, I think, you know, self-doubt and and concern about the future is very common. I think one of the most salient periods of times during the PhD, especially toward the end of the PhD, while sort of considering and trying to pursue different potential career trajectories, it's a very stressful and it's a very stressful period of time and a time when there's a lot of potential self-doubt and anxiety. And so certainly that was certainly a period of substantial resistance as as you put it. And how did I feel with that? I think in, in general, I have typically kept my eyes on on a particular goal, something that I want to accomplish and say, you know, we, we need to get through this difficult time and, and just work work through these challenges. Challenges are natural and, you know, self-doubt and insecurity is also natural, though I'm sure it took me some time to, you know, recognize that that's the case and come to normalize it. But yeah, just I think for me, keeping an eye on what the end goal is and recognizing that there will be difficulties along the way, that that has tended to be my approach to to addressing those types of challenges. You mentioned studying abroad in a different graduate program for a moment. You said it was a different field. Mm-hmm. What field was that program in? Yeah, yeah. So I was at the Hopkins Nenting Program, which is a program that has both one-year certificate, graduate certificate programs and two-year master's programs. I was in the one-year program. And the focus there is more on historical, cultural, political, scientific, and law and econ types of topics. And so all of this was very, very foreign to me as someone who had primarily studied um, humans in the context of psychology and linguistics. And so we had this much more macro level of study of human behavior and human societies. And so it was, it was very, very interesting. It, my classes were also in Mandarin. And so it was, it was challenging on a couple of levels, but it was very eye-opening in a number of ways, including, as I mentioned, despite it being very interesting, uh, helping me to identify that I was more interested in pursuing sort of human science at the psychological and linguistic level. Can you tell me a little bit more about your current research as a computational linguist? What do you focus on now and what are you particularly interested in the field? Sure. So computational linguistics is a pretty broad term. And so for any given computational linguist, there may be quite a bit of variety from person to person in what exactly they do. In my case, computational linguistics takes a couple of forms. There are two main threads to my research, one more human focused and one more artificial intelligence focused. And so on the artificial intelligence side, what we're doing is looking at natural language processing models, that is models that do the language component of AI, and primarily focusing on the extent to which they are managing to robustly and effectively understand their inputs, process the meaning of that input in a way that that humans do or as effectively as humans do, comparing them against human capabilities because human-like capabilities in the end are roughly speaking what we're targeting with AI and with language in particular. So we do a lot of analysis and evaluation of meaning understanding in AI models and sort of linguistic robustness. On the human side, what we're focused on is computational models for the purpose of testing hypotheses about how language is processed in the brain and then seeing how effectively those models manage to predict 
the ways that humans actually behave and using that to test them as hypotheses. And so that is focused more on understanding how the human brain works using computational models. And in particular, when humans are processing language in real time, as you are now listening to me, what are the mechanisms that enable the very effective language comprehension that the brain executes? I want to move into talking about your career as a professor and as an academic. I know one thing I heard you mention was that you really loved the research side of things. But of course, being a professor involves research and teaching. And I want to hear a bit about why both of those were appealing to you, why you chose an academic path, both for the the research and the teaching side of things. What were you hoping to get out of out of that career path, and, and are you getting that out of it now? Yeah. So teaching is uh, it's it's always very neat and very rewarding to help convey ideas and to help expose students to interesting and exciting areas that they have less knowledge of. I also really enjoy engaging with students in discussions. It's one of my favorite aspects of teaching, um, sort of working together to explore ideas and to create new directions and thoughts. And that's something that I enjoy a lot. So there are a lot of neat aspects uh, of the teaching side of things, of course, and mentorship of students as well is a, is a big component of what what we do as as faculty. And yeah, so, so, so helping to convey new ideas to students, helping to guide students through different processes is certainly a very rewarding type of experience. Yeah, and so I've been doing a lot of that as well in addition to the research. Where do you currently draw inspiration? What is currently inspiring you the most? I think for me, one of the most exciting things and one of the most motivating things is feeling like I'm able to have a concrete impact on society, on students, et cetera. And so in, in teaching, you know, trying to have sort of maximum positive impact is a, is a motivator. And in research, in general, sort of identifying, you know, what are the what are the key questions, the key problems in this field that really need to be answered within the domain of where my expertise lies. And then I, I'm certainly, I would say, most motivated by the those needs and trying to make steps toward addressing them. Is there anything that you are currently hoping to do in your career? What are you aspiring to do next? Any types of research you're looking to do or types of projects you're looking to work on? What are your, your current aspirations? Yeah, so in, in natural language processing, that language component of AI, the, things are changing very rapidly in the field right now. And while all of these rapid changes have been happening, one thing that I think has remained pretty consistent is a substantial need for effective and reliable and accurate ways to assess the capabilities of these AI models. We see very impressive behaviors and increasingly AI is becoming very prevalent in in society. And there are risks that come with widespread use of AI and certainly risks that come with not fully understanding or barely understanding the capabilities that these models really have and how robust they are and when and in what cases and, and to what level of severity they may be expected to fail in places where humans would not. And so for me, that is one of the top priorities and has remained one of the top priorities over the past few years is, is having effective evaluations and having a clear anchoring of our assessment of AI models within the domain of what we know about humans. Because when it comes to language and core components of language understanding, humans really are the gold standard. And so recognizing the complexities of what human language understanding is like and using that as a gold standard against which to compare the capabilities of AI, this, this is the main area of priority for me and, and focus at the moment. I'm curious if all of the current interest in things like ChatGPT are 
driving people to your field or if there is a lot of energy in in this area at the moment? How are those current splashy developments in artificial language impacting you and your work? Yeah, I would say that ChatGPT has created a ton of excitement outside of our field. And within the field, the effect has been a bit different because ChatGPT is not really, it is much more new, I think, to the public than the basic trajectory that led to ChatGPT was for us. So for the past few years, the things that led to ChatGPT have been developing incrementally, albeit very quickly. So it's a much more dramatic change with respect to the public perception relative to our field. However, its behaviors are very, very impressive. And so it leaves us with questions about where exactly do we go from here, particularly as the ability to develop state-of-the-art models becomes increasingly and dramatically centralized to companies that have really substantial resources to train those models. And so there are a lot of questions arising within the field, within among specialists with respect to you know, what things are going to look like as we move forward. But certainly, since it generates a lot of interest from the public, it may generate some more widespread interest. But there has been a lot of interest in our field for years. And it may even be the case that because of this centralization, because of sort of changes in how broad the different options are for for pursuing the field, potentially, we may even see a drop off in terms of how widespread the group of folks who are who are working on this is. But I'm not sure about that. This is all speculation at the moment. A lot of this is is new. Things are changing very rapidly. And so, but yeah, one of the most striking things is not necessarily a dramatic change within the area of, of specialists who work on these, but just how dramatically ChatGPT has permeated uh, the broader society and generated so much interest and attention. It's certainly very, very, very prominent and certainly affecting us. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to talk a bit more about the experience of of being a professor. What would you say are some of the most fun things about being a professor, about the the current role you have? What is the most enjoyable thing? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so as professors, there are a very wide variety of responsibilities, but I would say intellectually, the biggest focus is research and teaching. And both of those things have you know, excellent things that come with them. And so with research, you get to pursue problems that you're excited about and work on them with with collaborators and students. And there is typically quite a lot of flexibility to choose what research problems you want to work on. So that's that's quite beneficial. And um, and then on the teaching side, of course, you have the chance to interact with students in a wide variety of of different classes. It, at U Chicago, we particularly teach in the core. So not only our own you know, specific domain oriented teaching, but also teaching in sort of broader contexts, which can be both challenging and very interesting. And so, yeah, there are those things. And then as professors, there are lots of other things like, you know, we we engage in service, we organize conferences and workshops, we do peer review to help ensure quality in publications that come out in our fields. And there's really a very wide variety of things that you do as a professor. I think for every individual, some of those things Certain of those things are going to be more exciting and more fun than others, and there will always be certain things that are are maybe less actively exciting, but they're really a, a very wide variety of types of things that you get to do as a professor, which I think for a lot of people is quite quite an exciting prospect. You kind of hinted at my next question, which is what are some of the less fun parts of your job, things that might be tedious or frustrating? What are what are things that you don't love about what you do? I think once again, this is a very individual type of thing. I once had a, a, when I was a graduate student, there was a faculty member who pointed out that any job you have is going to involve a tax, but what that 
taxes, that is the tax being the, the part of it that you don't love as much, what that tax is is going to vary a lot from individual to individual. Yeah, it really varies a lot. In my case, I would say, yeah, things that involve a lot of, well, it really it depends. Maybe sometimes I think that involve more tedious sort of reading through of files, reviewing of of applications and things like that might be one, one aspect of things that it can sometimes be time-consuming in a way that is not as exciting, but it can be very exciting and important in that often the process of reviewing applications leads to finding of new and exciting colleagues. And so they're, you know, they're really important aspects to, to the things that can be a little more tedious as well. You mentioned putting together conferences and putting together talks. And I'm curious about some of the interdisciplinary communities that you're a part of. Can you tell me a bit more about those interdisciplinary communities and what role you play in them and what that work looks like? I would say the the primary groups that I kind of bridge are the groups of, of linguists and computer scientists, folks who work in AI, as well as cognitive scientists, psychologists, and, and things like that. I tend to have involvement with all three of these different groups. And I think that these connections are extremely valuable and very exciting. They're fresh ideas and perspectives that can flow into a field when folks who are coming from outside of that field come in and, and view things with this fresh perspective. And so, uh, and I have always been very interested in interdisciplinary work or rather from, from an early point in my, in my research career, very interested in interdisciplinary work. And so one aspect of what I find to be very important and actively engage in as an interdisciplinary researcher and bridge between different communities, it just really centers on the notion of communication and clearly communicating ideas and helping people to engage without just getting confused and then sort of zoning out, checking out of the, of the interaction. So this is something that I have been very interested in and passionate about since I was a, a graduate student, because when I began engaging with, in particular, engaging with computer scientists, Having originally been a linguist, I had to learn very quickly that speaking in a way that is very effective when speaking to linguists is not necessarily effective when speaking to people who come from outside of the field because they're not operating with the same assumptions. They're not operating with understanding of the same terminologies and things like that. And so you really have to reframe and rethink the way that you communicate. And I have always found this to be a very interesting and extremely valuable process. And so I organized, as part of a workshop that I was organizing for graduate training, I led a training session, an extended training session on interdisciplinary communication and science communication in general. And so this is something that I find to be sort of a central theme in terms of what I do with with interdisciplinary communities. My lab is very interdisciplinary. I, I play a role of helping to communicate between the different groups since I have practice with this and I'm able to often, hopefully, reasonably often recognize when folks on one side may be confused or lost, help to, to bridge those gaps. And then on the more sort of organizational side, I am involved in helping to organize conferences and workshops and other events that will bring together members of different communities. And in organizing those things, of course, we need to think about how do we maintain engagement from these different sides? How do we make this a valuable experience for folks who are coming from very different areas? And so those are some of the some of the considerations and some of the activities. What advice would you have for an undergraduate student or someone who is interested in pursuing a graduate career in your field? When considering any career path, it makes sense to be very informed about exactly what is involved 
in that career path and whether it's the right choice for you, whether it's the right way to spend your time. I think pursuing a PhD, the extent to which pursuing a PhD guides you toward academia per se varies from field to field. So many folks graduating from more computer science or computational linguistics types of PhD programs, there's a bit more of a, a balanced comparison between whether they end up going into more industry-focused positions versus academic positions. Whereas for linguists, it's a little bit less clear that that uh, they will be doing something that looks exactly like their linguistics research if they leave academia. And so often that guides some of the some of the decision making when folks are leaving their PhD. But in considering whether to go into academia, yeah, those are the important considerations. You know, do you want to be doing a career that involves research and teaching? Do you want to be working in a university context? Is that the right thing for you? Speaking with people about their experiences is very useful. I was very happy that prior to going into my PhD, I spent a lot of time figuring out whether research was something I really wanted to do. You know, pursuing a PhD shouldn't be because you just want to do more school. You know, you should consider whether the career paths that will follow from that are, are the right ones for you. So those, those would be some of my pieces of advice. What is the most gratifying part of your current job? Yeah, I think for both the research and teaching sides, there are sort of separate most gratifying components. I think on the teaching and mentoring side, the most gratifying thing is feeling like I've genuinely helped a student uh, who had some kind of need. And and that that to me is, is very valuable and very gratifying. And uh, on the research side, I would say the most gratifying thing is being able to work on exciting things and and make some type of contribution that feels like it has really advanced knowledge or advanced some type of, of need. It solves some type of problem. Those are, those are the most gratifying moments in research. Professor Edinger, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you again, Professor Edinger, for your time today. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. Leave us a comment, subscribe, follow, and share this episode with your friends and family. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Stay tuned for more. See you around.